to the Gospel of John, and uh, this is our 20th week in, in this Gospel. We're in chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 12. We're calling today's message, If Then. If Then. Um, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. That's something that my, my grandma used to say to me when I was a little kid. I never knew what it meant. I had no idea what it meant. I knew it, what it meant. It meant no. So if we were in the store and I said, Grandma, can I have that or can we buy that? If wishes were horses, she'd say, and off we'd go. And I, all I knew was it meant no. And uh, so when I was thinking about this message today, if then, that, that little phrase just came back to my mind. So I did a little bit of uh, uh, research on my friend Google and uh, found out uh, that this little poem, as a matter of fact, let me read the whole poem for you. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride. If turnips were watches, I'd wear one by my side. If ifs and ands were pots and pans, there'd be no work for tinkers' hands. Uh, this proverb or this nursery rhyme was first recorded clear back in 1628 in a collection of Scottish proverbs. And the, the rhyme suggests if wishing could make things happen, then even the most destitute people would have everything they wanted. Well, our text in the Gospel of John today is a, a fairly lengthy passage where Jesus is engaged in conversation and in debate with his critics and his enemies. Today, we would probably just call them his haters. He was there with his haters. And they wished some things. They wished that God would act in a particular way of their choosing. And they wished that Jesus would stop messing with their preferred system of things. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Well, we're not going to look at every verse in this passage, but we're going to exa examine a, a series of statements that Jesus makes throughout this passage. And these statements all include promised results. Now, you might remember that last week, we saw these same religious leaders try to test Jesus by bringing him a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And instead of falling into their trap, we saw that Jesus humbled his critics while at the same time exalting this woman who had been caught in sin. Rather than dishing out condemnation or compromising God's word, Jesus carefully balanced all of that and showed great compassion toward that woman as he encouraged her to go and sin no more. Well, now those same critics are back again. There's more of them this time. Uh, and this time, though, it's Jesus that kind of goes on the offense, if you will. And he begins by making a very bold statement about himself that causes these religious leaders to launch into all kinds of false attacks and accusations and even death threats towards Jesus. So I want to read the first part of this text together with you. The words are going to be on the screen. This is John 8, verses 12 through 16. Let's read this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. 
but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Amen. The Word of God. Well, as we work our way through this chapter, we're going to see Jesus make several of what we're calling conditional statements. And while they are directed at the religious leaders and the critics of Jesus' day, they are still very true statements that can impact our spiritual life and our growth today. Now, a conditional statement is one that puts forth a, a cause and an effect or an outcome. They're often phrased in an if-then pattern. Let me give you an example. If you stand in the rain, then you will get wet. Cause and effect. Jesus often used this form of logical teaching or persuasion to get across his points on spiritual truth. He would often use physical examples from agriculture or everyday life to illustrate very relevant spiritual truths. And by the way, his opponents often argued against Jesus' persuasive conditional statements. Let me illustrate for you how this worked by going back to my example I just shared. When I make that conditional statement, if you stand in the rain, then you will get wet. Now, you can choose to receive that conditional statement as truthful, or you can choose to argue against it. You could say, well, yeah, but if I had an umbrella, what then, Rob? I wouldn't get wet. Or you could say, well, what, what if I stand partially under the eaves of my house and I only get half wet? Then am I really wet at all? What about that, Rob? You see what I'm getting at? This is what what his opponents so often did with Jesus. Jesus would make a statement, and rather than consider its validity, they would immediately argue about it. And, and that is what happens all the way through this encounter that we're going to look at today. Jesus makes a statement, and they say, yeah, but, but Jesus, you're wrong. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, Jesus, but you're mistaken. Jesus, you, you're a liar. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, you have a demon in you. Or, Jesus, we're going to kill you. All of those statements come up in our text today. So today, we're going to look at four of these logical, conditional statements that Jesus makes, and we're going to apply them to our spiritual walk. But before we do that, I want to briefly consider the two I am statements that Jesus makes to begin and to end this conversation. They're like bookends to a, a, of a library of crucial spiritual truths. Jesus begins and ends with an I am statement. And if you remember all the way back to our introduction in the Gospel of John, we said that John includes seven key I am statements in his Gospel. And those are to link Jesus directly to the personal name of God, Yahweh. In English we, we say Jehovah, but in Hebrew it is I am the personal name of God. We saw the first one uh, in John just a few weeks ago in chapter 6 when, when Jesus announced, I am the bread of life. You remember that after he fed the, the large crowd of people from one boy's sack lunch? And then today, Jesus begins this conversation right out of the gate by announcing to his critics in verse 12, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees, when they hear that, it just drives them nuts. And they immediately go on the attack. They say, in essence, in verse 13, Jesus, you're a big fat liar. You're a big fat liar. And then, and then uh, they say, you know, you can't just declare something about yourself to be true. You can't bear witness to yourself, Jesus. But Jesus' answer in, in verse 14, he says, hey, my testimony is true. And, and in fact, my judgment is true. And in, in fact, I, I bear witness about myself and the Father bears witness about me as well. So there you go, guys. So we can choose to walk in the light, following Jesus, or we can choose to do things our own way, which is kind of like stumbling around in the darkness. And these religious leaders, they chose the darkness. And so this morning, I want to say, what about you? What about me? What will we choose? So Jesus begins with one startling I am statement, and then he ends with another I am statement that is even bolder. Let's read the last part of the conversation in verses 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of God. So this I am statement is not really even one of John's seven. And that's because in this passage, there's no analogy, there's no metaphor, there's no hidden meaning. Jesus clearly and boldly takes the personal name of Jehovah God, I am, and he applies it right to himself. Remember, any time that Jesus says or prefaces his statement with truly, truly, then something big, something super important, something vital is about to be laid out. Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There are no cross signals here, are there? Jesus equates himself with the Father. And the officials are so enraged that they attempt to kill him right there on the spot. They're ready to just stone him to death. Sadly, the leaders don't care, though, do they? You know, Jesus knows who he is. And he knows why he came, and he knows what he has to offer. But these leaders, charged with protecting the spiritual welfare of an entire nation, reject these truths because they just don't fit with their personal viewpoint or agenda. And so again, I ask, what about you and me? What about us? Well, now let's explore these four conditional statements that I was telling you about to see if we really know him. Do we really know Jesus? The first conditional statement is this. It, it, it has the theme of truth, and here's the application. If we hold on, then we really know. If we hold on, then we really know. Let's read verses 31 and 32 together. So, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in this conditional statement, Jesus makes it clear that his word is truth. And that by abiding in or holding on to that truth, we will find freedom. Now, we've probably all heard people say something along the lines of, well, that's your truth. I have my truth, you have your truth, everything's fine. But here, Jesus tells us that there is no such thing as your truth or my truth. In fact, there is only God's truth. Truth is, we could say, transcendent. There is an objective standard of truth outside of us and above us. There is a, a moral order to the universe, just like there's a, a, material, a material and a physical order. There's a moral order. And to be in touch with truth is to be in touch with reality. You might have heard this old fable about the six blind men who come upon an elephant. And one takes a hold of the elephant's tail and he declares with certainty that the elephant is a, a rope. And another blind man felt the elephant's great side and he says, it's, it's a wall. And another felt the ear and said, well, it, it's a fan. Another felt the tusk and said, it's a, it's a spear. And on and on it goes. You get the idea. And the, the, the story is supposed to demonstrate the idea of pluralism. That people have uh, many different opinions about what truth is and that all of those opinions are valid. It's supposed to show that no one really understands reality. Nobody really has a corner on the truth and that we should therefore be open and tolerant of all ideas. But really there's a couple of problems with that conclusion. And the first one is this. All the men in this fable are what? Blind. They are blind. And so the implication is then that we're all blind. Nobody really knows the truth. And yet, the real truth is that God has opened our eyes and he has revealed his transcendent truth to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Well, the second problem with our little story about the elephant is that all of those men are wrong. Is that right? The elephant really exists, and he truly is an elephant. He's not a rope or a fan or a wall. He's an elephant and nothing else. So we could say then that God is the elephant, and that many people in Jesus' day, and many people today, have agreed not to see or talk about him with any degree of certainty. We can't really know. And so you have your truth and I have my truth. Even though Jesus' own statements are filled with certainty. Everything that Jesus said is filled with certainty. In a few more chapters ahead, we're not there yet, but when we get to chapter 14 in John's gospel, we are going to consider this very divisive and yet completely certain I am statement of Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the truth and the life, 
and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? A pretty divisive statement, a pretty certain statement. And friends, we live in a culture, we live in a world where it is increasingly more wrong to judge evil than it is to do evil. Tolerance is the great virtue of our day, and anything else comes under the umbrella of judgmentalism and is seen as a great sin. The problem with that idea is that there is one final judge, and his name is God, Jehovah, I am. And his son, Jesus, is the exclusive dispenser of truth and life. Not our feelings, not our opinions, not our preferences, but Jesus himself. And so in faith, we must Hold on to the truth, especially in the midst of the raging storms of doubt and uncertainty and arrogant rebellion that are swirling all about us. And as we hold on, we will find that more and more we will become comfortable knowing what is true, which leads then to experiencing the freedom that only his truth provides. And so this leads then right into our next conditional statement. Conditional statement number two, which is the theme of freedom. And the application is this. If we are set free, then we are really free. If we're set free, then we're really free. Let's read the next passage together, verses 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Amen. Now, you know, many of the problems that we experience in our life come from the fact that at times we are still pursuing our selfish, fleshly desires and habits. Or that we are experiencing the consequences of past poor decisions that were made according to our flesh. Now, when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, he wipes out the spiritual and the eternal consequences for our past mistakes, our sins, and our rebellion. However, because we still live in this world, there may be earthly consequences that still continue to follow us. Now sometimes Satan will seek to deceive or to influence us in these areas. He wants us to believe that we are not free, that we are still in bondage. But that is not the truth. There is no partial freedom in the life of a Christian. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
want you to think of yourself as a resident in an apartment house. And you live there under a landlord who has made your life miserable. He charges you exorbitant rent, and when you can't pay, he loans you money at a horrendous rate of interest to get you even further into his debt. He barges into your apartment whenever he wants, all hours of day and night. He wrecks and dirties the place up, and then he charges you extra for not maintaining the premises. Your life is miserable. But then, but then comes someone who says, I've taken over this apartment complex. I've purchased it. And you can live here as long as you like for free rent. The rent is paid up. In fact, I'm going to be living here with you in the manager's apartment. Well, what a joy. You are saved. You are delivered out of the clutches of the old landlord. Freedom. But then what happens? You hardly have time to rejoice in your newfound freedom when a knock comes at the door. And who might it be as you open it? It's the old landlord. And he's mean. And he's glowering. And he's as demanding as ever. He's come for the rent, he says. What do you do? Do you pay him? Of course you don't. Do you, do you go out and just punch him in the nose? No. No, he's bigger and meaner than you are. Instead, you confidently tell him, you need to take that up with the new landlord. Now, he may bellow and threaten and intimidate, but you just quietly tell him, take it up with my new landlord. And if he comes back a dozen times with all sorts of threats and arguments, waving legal-looking documents in your face, you simply once again tell him, take it up with my new landlord. And in the end, he has to. He knows it too. He just hopes that he can bluff and threaten and deceive you into doubting that the new landlord will really Take care of things. You see, friends, if we truly have given our life to Jesus Christ, then there is no way for sin to have dominion, rule over us, unless we allow it to. Every time we open the door for our sinful desires or for the temptation the devil brings, we allow a wedge into that door of our spirit just a little bit further. And our sense of freedom is diminished. If we are set free, though, we are then really free. That is the truth statement. We are not partially free. We're not periodically free. We're not free only when we feel free. We are, in Jesus' terms, Free indeed. And that is the condition that we find ourselves in when Jesus is Lord. The truth of Jesus leads to real freedom in Jesus, which then incorporates a third conditional statement that comes up in our text today. Conditional statement number three with a theme of faith. And the application is, if we are God's children, then we will really live by faith. 
Let's read verses 39 through 41 together. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Is that the end, Darling? Is that the last slide? Okay, we got that. Thank you. So, let's talk about Abraham for a moment. In, in this next section, the religious leaders, they make their stand based on their heritage, right? We're children of Abraham. They, they make their stand on their past, on their family connections. We're children of Abraham. That's all that matters. Quit telling us, Jesus, about your so-called truth and freedom. We already have our own truth and our own freedom. But you see, friends, Jesus wants us to understand that our salvation, our spiritual standing, our future hope, none of these are guaranteed because of who our ancestors were or what country we live in or how secure we feel. If we want to be a part of God's eternal family, all that matters is our faith. And that faith must be real. And it must be active in order for it to be effective. If we are God's children, then we will really live by faith. Now, Abraham was the first man chosen by God for a role in the plan of redemption. It was Abraham who God chose to be the father of many nations simply because it was his will. God knew that Abraham would struggle with the call set before him, but he also knew that his struggle would produce great growth and faith. Now, Abraham never had perfect faith. In fact, if you know any bit, much at all about Abraham's life, there were many missteps along the way. But he always had active faith. Abraham was called by God to leave his home in Haran. And he obediently did so, even no, not knowing where he was going. You see, that is active faith. It's not perfect, but it is willing. Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 when their son Isaac was born. Remember, this was the promised son, one that they had waited for years to receive. And at times, their faith was weak while they waited. And they even failed when they took matters into their own hands. But God was patient and faithful and Abraham's faith remained active. Abraham and Sarah, they were so happy with their new son Isaac. But then God had a test for Abraham. Remember that? God told him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I'll tell you. This would have been a tremendous shock to any parent to be blessed by a long-awaited child, only to have God show up and say, sacrifice your only child. Now, the Bible does not say that Abraham hesitated, not even for a moment. In fact, there are certain passages that indicate that Abraham's strong faith 
uh, in God was so strong that he, he didn't believe God would take his son. Abraham even believed at one point that God would raise Isaac from the dead, bring him back to life if the sacrifice did take place. And so we see that Abraham's faith remained active even when he did not fully understand God's ways. It made no sense to him, but God said it. And so he would do it in faith. Again, not perfect faith, but active faith. And friends, if we are to be Abraham's children, the recipients of a promised place in God's kingdom, our faith will not be in a system or a tradition or in our family heritage. It will be solely in Jesus Christ and in his plan and purpose for us. Only then will we do what Abraham did. To live by active faith. So we've looked at truth. We've looked at freedom. We've looked at faith. And one more conditional statement that shapes our spiritual life. And that is, number four, the statement that has the theme of assurance. Assurance. And here's our application statement. If we keep his word, then we will really live forever forever. By this time in this lengthy conversation, Jesus' opponents are so frustrated, they're so angry, they're so opposed to Jesus' truth-telling that they just resort to, to all kinds of stuff. Racial insults, name-calling, complete disdain. Let's read this next section beginning in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are anyway, Jesus? That's what they say there at the end. Now in verse 51, we see another one of those truly, truly statements and a final conditional statement that applies to our faith journey. If we keep his word, then we will really live forever. Jesus' whole purpose and plan in coming to this temporary earth was to provide a way for us to experience the abundant life of his eternal family. Friends, eternity is not an imaginative far off, maybe one day vague existence. It is a reality that we are assured is being prepared for those who will keep his word. That word keep is the same word sometimes translated as abide 
or hold. And it has the idea of living in or experiencing fully. You see, Jesus' critics, they missed out. They missed out on the greatest promise of all time because they were fixated on holding on to, on abiding in or keeping, not God's word, but their preferred way of life. They loved their heritage and their traditions and their personal opinions and their preferences so much that they could not see the very Messiah that they were waiting for, even when he was standing right in front of them. Friends, may that not be true of us. Abiding in Christ is not a feeling. It's not even a belief. But it's something that we do something that we live in, something that we fully experience. And so may we walk in truth and freedom. May we live with faith and with a strong assurance of our eternal future as we keep his word. China's first emperor was a man by the name of Qi Shi Wang. He is famous for his terracotta warriors. Thousands of statues that have been dug up that display the magnificent power that he achieved. He, he's famous for uniting China. But he is less well known for his quest for immortality. He sent his subjects out to discover immortality. And as a result, he tried many magical potions and substances in his quest to cheat death. And one of those was mercury. He drank mercury, which was believed to grant eternal life. But instead, it's very likely what killed him. Isn't that ironic? The first emperor's determination to cheat death hastened his own demise when he was just 50 years old. Jesus said that those who seek to gain the whole world will lose their soul. Friends, no one can cheat death. And trying to do so often will lead to death itself. You know, I think that the reason why so many of us in the church live far beneath the privilege that we have as sons and daughters of the Most High God, I think it's because of fear and uncertainty and doubt. Trusting in the things of this world more than trusting in God and His Word and his plan, and his truth. However, if we can put these if-then statements of Jesus into action in our own lives, if we can apply them to the choices we make and the way that we live, then we will grow. And we will begin to experience more and more the abundance 
of really knowing him with real freedom and real faith as we prepare to really live forever with him. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the power